Olamihente, your boy Sky John here today, and I'm sitting with the great Tony Giordano. Okay, that sounds like a wealthy last name, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, sound like a Gucci bag or something like that. Yes, it is. All right, Tony, please tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Uh, I my name is Tony Giordano, and I'm in real estate as well as a speaker, an author of books, and a coach for business professionals. But I've been in the real estate industry for about 20 years now. Okay, and it's worked out very well for you. It has worked out very well. There's been some life lessons in it, but it's worked out very well for sure. I I have a, a few different ventures with my wife. So I started in this industry in 1998 uh-huh. at 20 years old as a mortgage broker. Okay, and I had a very successful career for for that seven or eight year run. Way too much money in my early 20s because everything was that fake housing market that would come crashing down in 08. In 2008, it all came crashing down, and I came crashing with it. Lost everything. Really? Millions, houses, boats, everything. You name it, it was all gone. And it was a big life lesson because it was built on a house of cards, that entire economy, pretty much after September 11th. So after about trying to figure out how I was going to you know, rebound and reinvent myself, I was so fed up with mortgage and the lending industry that in 2009, I switched to the sales side. Okay, joined an office, started selling real estate instead of financing the real estate. And in some of the things that we'll learn today uh, through what I did with technology and social media and video, my business exploded as a real estate agent and the rest is history. I became a national speaker. People started asking me if I could coach them on how I was doing it. Uh-huh. So let me, let me take you back in time for a second. You just spoke about how you lost everything in 2008. And that sounds pretty interesting. What happened? Uh, the fake housing market happened. So I, I was 20 years old. I started being a mortgage broker in 1998, going into 1999, uh, make way too much money at 21 years old. I mean, it's just insane. Like, like, what were you making? And I didn't come from wealth. I uh-huh. didn't come from business savvy parents. I didn't know what credit reports were and the importance of a FICO score. So I just wanted to be a firefighter. So I needed to save up enough money to put myself through the four-month California Fire Academy so I start selling loans, and I was good at it. And I made in that first nine months of my rookie year in 1999, $72,000. Uh-huh. Had a nice car for the first time in my life, had a two-bedroom condo. And then what happened is I go to the four-month academy because I saved up enough money, graduate, get picked up as a reserve firefighter, go back to the mortgage company for the days that I'm not at the station. I'm a loan officer, and in 2000, I make 180 grand. Uh-huh. In 2001, seasoned real estate agents and mortgage brokers started saying, hey, savor the flavor, kid. This isn't going to last. And I go, what do you mean? You're not going to make this much in 2001. And I go, why? Because a shift is coming. Housing correction. Every 10 or so years, a recession comes and real estate flattens and goes down. Uh 1960, 1970, 1980, 1991. And I was like, oh, good. Thank goodness I have the fire department, right? Because they're scaring the crap out of me at this point. But it didn't go down, did it? No. Because two planes went into the towers, uh-huh. and that's what was the birth of the fake housing market. Uh-huh. And the American dream was reborn, go buy a house, forget about the terrorist attack. Then three years later, don't think about the wars or anything that's yeah. going on in the world. Go, here's a home equity line of credit. Here's another 25% value increase to your property. Go buy a plasma screen for every bedroom and a boat. And that was what that whole house of cards economy was built off of. So when people realized it should have shifted in 01, it didn't. 
it went through the roof more than it ever has in history, then it came crashing down. So everybody was built on leverage. My entire empire, multi-million dollar empire, was leveraged. Everything had a bank loan on it. Uh -huh. All the houses had a bank loan on it. My cars had a bank loan on it. Boats had a bank loan on it. And I was just spending, spending, spending. And there's a lot of factors that had happened in that leading up to 07 and 08. But, you know, I went through a divorce. And, you know, so I was, I was starting to slow down and see, like, things were happening. But I was too, too uh, immature to do uh -huh. anything about it. And I'm barely 29 at this point. And look at what I had built. And so when the faucet turned off and the house of cards came crashing down in 08, I lost everything because I was over leveraged. So mm -hmm. I didn't have any more income coming in. Nobody could get a loan. Nobody yeah, could yeah, get a jumbo that. loan. Even athlete clients of mine, pro athletes, celebrities who I'd, I'd work with were getting declined from the biggest banks who had millions of dollars. Yeah, Lehman Brothers is crashing. Bear Stearns is crashing. Uh, stock market's crashing 900 points a day for days in a row. And so the faucet completely turned off on my type of clientele, and I couldn't pay for anything. So eventually, things started getting into default. Then the banks start calling. Then they want their money. And I just had to let everything go. And I had 19 foreclosures on my credit. God damn, Tony. Holy I, shit. I went from 812 FICO score to 496. Oh. I didn't even know you could have a 496. <laughs> and what, so, but this was when I thought, you know what, Tony, you, you lost. And, and you have to be willing to accept it. And so it was before I found out that people who were also in my position started playing the game back to the economy and the banks. And what people were doing, if you remember, is they were not paying their mortgage for months, but still taking the rental income from their tenants. Uh -huh. And so now they're just taking a ton of net income and not paying because, well, when the bank finally comes to take it, then cool. But I'll just take all this money. And I never did that. My, my houses went into foreclosure immediately, and I thought, okay, I need a short sale. I need to get them off my record. And the tenant was like, hey, is this in default? Yeah. Well, then we don't, we don't pay you rent. No, I'm not paying the company. Like, and you, you, should, you should start to figure out how to get out. Like, I thought that was the honest thing to do. And then so I lose all my houses, and then I find out people have, had, people have been in default for nine months and have made $90,000 in rental income and haven't paid their mortgage, you know? And that would have been great for me, but I, I – didn't do that. I thought. <laughs> no, you honest. You honest. And I'm glad I didn't because no. I just would have felt dirty. Yeah, anyways, yeah, yeah. As well as, I had a two year head start. So when I rebounded and I rebuilt everything I lost and mm -hmm. I started doing well again and I digged out of the crash, I was already that much longer from those foreclosures. So it was easy for an attorney to clean up my credit and get rid of things because I didn't allow that to go on for so long. I just let them go immediately and said, here's the keys. Uh -huh. Sorry, I can't pay it. Yeah, wow, wow. But I mean, you, you, you were honest with it because I, I know situations where a person was paying their, paying their rent every month and then they get kicked out of the home not knowing that the, the owner wasn't paying the mortgage, yeah. you know? That happened to, that happened to a oh, lot of people. so many people. Wow, that is, that's, that's, a, that's a crazy story. But, but that's a great example of how all these guys out there who really feel like they have bad credit. I mean, the fact that you lost all that 
were down to 412, unable to come back. 496. Huh? Four, 496, sorry. Sheesh. Four. Wasn't that bad? <laughs> Four, 496. Okay, so you, 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 you're known as a person who kind of brought tech into real estate. Explain that to us. So what happened was I, uh, I got so fed up with lending, I'm like, I'm done. And in 2006, uh, when a lot of people who, who watch TV and real estate shows on TV, there's the show Million Dollar Listing, Bravo mm-hmm. TV. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the stars of the show for season one as a rookie was Madison, a good friend of mine in Malibu. And I was still a loan guy. Life is good. 2006, that's like one of the best years ever uh, in that fake housing market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was on the show as his mortgage guy, like his loan guy, like Madison's loan referral guy. And then 07, the crash comes. Uh, in 08, it really comes. So I'm not doing anything. I'm losing everything. So I'm not on the show. I'm not even able to, to get any of the loans approved that he's sending me anymore. So in 09, I got so fed up that I called Madison. I said, hey, man, I'm switching to your side. I'm done. I can't do lending anymore. I've lost my passion for it. And so he said, great, I'll introduce you to my manager. So I joined his office in uh, October of 2009. And I had to figure out, okay, I have no money. I've lost everything. I can't rub elbows with the wealthy. I can't go to expensive restaurants. I can't look equal to the, to the biggest agents in LA with the car I drive. Uh-huh. I can't go to the same charity events. How am I gonna do this? You know, you don't really go door knocking in Beverly Hills or Malibu, right? Yeah. And I have a beat up truck. Like, I'm going to even be able to roll around Rodeo Drive <laughs> to go, go door knocking in Beverly Hills. I'll get pulled over for Beverly Hills Police Department. Like, why are you driving through here? Uh, so what am I going to do? So I started Googling uh, the biggest luxury agents in the United States, like in other urban markets as well as L.A. And the one thing I saw that they all had in common was they'd have certain uh, online presence with websites. They had great websites and things like that. So I pulled some money together uh, through both my godfather, uh, my great uncle Mike, as well as my uh, one last little commission check I'd gotten on a loan. And I spent $5,000 building an extraordinary gorgeous website as a real estate agent. Then as that website gets built, because now if somebody Googles me, at least I look as equal as the biggest agents I'm going to be going up against. Right. And that to me is the only way I could look equal. Then I I saw classes about social media and I knew there was something to social media that people weren't taking advantage of and that I wasn't. And so I went to this class and quickly I realized, okay, this is just a tech class. This is a class teaching me how to click and do things inside Facebook. Great. I need to learn that. But I didn't see where I was going to get a ton of value. And then it just dawned on me one day as I was clicking around and doing things in social media that what I learned from him was the tech side and that the side that actually gets the ROI is the human side. Right. And the fact that it's just where humans are today. So I need to get in a car and learn how to drive it in order to go to a neighborhood to go door knocking. But that's not the car's not making me make the money. That's just the source of getting to where I need to go to talk to people. Tech is just, I need to learn the tech and go to these social media classes and learn how to do it. But once I'm in it, like a car, now I'm in the neighborhood and now it just becomes people. It's just relationships. That's what sales has always been. And where are people today online? So instead of 
door to door, I was door clicking. I was in Facebook. I was in social networks. I was engaging complete strangers, building a relationship with them, complimenting them. Then they would like my comment. Then I would send a friend request. Friend request accepted. And within literally three weeks of taking a completely different approach to social media, that's still 98% of people do not do, still. Within, within three weeks, some random lady I'd added as a friend on Facebook referred her father's $5.8 million listing to me. Oh, that's a sweet commission. And so I knew I couldn't get it on my own, so I brought another agent on it with me who is going to help me get it because who cares that you got the lead? You still need to be a good enough, experienced enough agent to close that lead in their living room. So we co-represented it. And in 2010, in my first six months as an agent, I had closed four transactions. Three came from Facebook, and I was only doing Facebook at like 20%. So then I really jumped in with both feet, and the rest is history. I exploded. Uh, people then started saying, how are you doing this? Then I started figuring out the niche and how to do it on Twitter and LinkedIn, being one of the first agents shooting videos on my listings. And then it just, the rest just exploded. And so... I've always been somebody who writes books or teaches people the power of social media first, the power of technology, the power of video more than anything inside social networks. Okay, but you said 90, 98% of agents still aren't doing this? Mm -mm. I would say 70, uh, I would say 50% of agents don't even touch it. I would say the other 50% touch it. Uh, out of the other half that are doing it, 80% think they're doing it right. They have it, they post, they post their listings, but they're not getting any ROI from it. And the percentage of agents that actually get significant leads and deals from branding themselves online at a high level through social platforms and video, less than 2% easily. Wow, wow. So why don't more of them listen to you? Because, I mean, you're a big player in this industry. Everybody knows you. Why hasn't your message caught on, you think? I think that it really falls to any industry. Any industry where a speaker's on stage wowing an audience and telling them you got to do this, it comes down to, like, the Tony Robbins disc personality assessment where you have doers and you have people who don't do mm -hmm. anything. And so 90% of America love listening they love hearing cool things. It motivates them, and then they turn around, and the next day when they attempt to do it, they're like, ah, I'll get to it later. So 10% of the audience is going to do anything I say consistently. But then within just a month of doing it, we've lost 80% of them now. Uh -huh. So now we're down to 2% of my audience a month after hearing or reading the book are still, like, they're actually starting to see ROI, and they're like, oh, my goodness, this does work but it's because they're doers. They're driven, ambitious people who, once they see something works, they wanna just continue. But that's only 10% of America are that high-level, driven, ambitious, gregarious, influential type of personality, and they tend to just rock what I teach. Okay, here's a question, though. Why would you even teach people how to do this? Because if it's working so well for you, why not just run the whole market? I don't speak and train in L.A. very much, uh -huh. and that's our market. <laughs> so uh, I, I get asked to speak everywhere else. Okay. Um, 
and when I get asked to speak in LA, like yesterday was a, a very rare uh, occurrence, but I would even in LA. Uh-huh. And the reason for it is my passion has always been helping people. Uh-huh. I, I've just had this passion since a very, very young age. And my father uh, is just an extraordinary teacher. Uh, he's, he's more of the behind the podium teacher, uh-huh. but he taught me how to speak in front of an audience and want to help people at the age of 11. And so by the age of 18, I just had a passion for naturally helping people and teaching. And he made me a good teacher. So then when through my 20s as a mortgage broker, yeah, I love the money. I love doing it. But I want to I show people that mm-hmm. they can also do it. And then when I became a real estate agent, finding all these new things, I want to actually help people realize how easy it is. So I think that there's enough business. And I think that the more we give, the more we receive. I mean, these are just standard, yeah, I mean, I mean, standard philosophies in life. But... Also, I don't give everything. Uh-huh. I mean, I give a lot of uh-huh. value that will help them increase their business, but a smart businessman isn't going to give everything. Yeah. So to answer your question, they don't have everything, <laughs> they, but they do have a lot. You also work with crypto as well. I do. You, you've, you, you have you ever sold a house for crypto? Yeah. So we, uh, the, the, a few years ago, what had happened was I was, uh, I got reached out to by somebody who was who's into cryptocurrency. Uh-huh. And he said, do you think that eventually somebody will be able to buy a house with Bitcoin? Uh-huh. And I said, it's a currency. Consumers forced a hand of change. When people embrace something, it, it seems to find its way in any industry. And why couldn't it? I don't know what factors are going to be involved, but who knows? When this person reached out to me, I had no idea what cryptocurrency was or Bitcoin. I was just going with the flow, trying to seem like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and this, this is years ago. So after I was done talking to this guy at this, uh, at this conference, I immediately, as he walked away even, I grabbed my phone and I, I Googled what the heck is cryptocurrency. <laughs> and this is back like 2014 or something like oh, that. Oh, it's the early days. Yeah. So, and Bitcoin was like a hundred bucks for a Bitcoin and oh. stuff like that. And then it'd go up to 600 and then it crashed. And so I started watching videos on it. Uh-huh. I started reading articles on it, learning it, understanding it. I was YouTubing it. And I was becoming very, very knowledgeable of what it was, how it works, why it is going to continue growing, what the technology is. And then sure enough, a few years later, he comes calling again and saying, I have a client who's made a ton and he wants to buy a house. And where it came down to is there are people out there, agents who have said, oh, I've done a crypto deal. And then when I look at it, I go, no, that's not considered a crypto deal. A crypto deal that you think happened was you had somebody make a lot of money in Bitcoin. They transferred it to U.S. dollar and then they bought the house. That's not a crypto deal. A crypto deal is they're going to move Bitcoin into a third-party wallet, escrow of some sort, the seller of this house is willing to have that Bitcoin transferred to his Bitcoin wallet and take Bitcoin as his form of currency on the sale of that house. Uh-huh. We have handled that. And now it's now a lot of people actually, not a lot, but a, quite a few people, this is not something that's just happened in LA. Remember, it's a currency. And whether or not you think humans gave gold their Uh value or it is valuable, 
See, because gold isn't valuable unless we give it a value. Yeah, yeah. People are giving the same uh, aspect to cryptocurrency. So if you have digital, if you have earth mountains, right? We have mountains on earth that we mine to find these rare, rare pieces of metal and we give it a value. And now it's what backs currency. In the, in the internet, you have digital mountains. And these miners go in and mine inside these digital mountains in the internet to find these cryptic numbers that are so hard to find that just because of the effort it takes to mine the mountain to find that metal yeah. is just because you spent so much money, energy, and time to even get in and find this, yeah. it's valuable. Yeah. And it started in 09. Like, this has not been around just since 2014 or 15. So what, what people need to understand is it's a currency, and a currency is simply what two human beings are willing to give a value to to sell, buy, trade a product or a service. Yeah. That's it. So, and you can't even say our, our U.S. currency is valuable because we don't even have enough gold to back it up no. of the $22 trillion deficit. So... Remember what it is, it's currency. Now that being said, we as real estate agents have no factor in what form of currency our client wants to take for his paid off house. Paid off house. Yeah, because they have a mortgage, the the mortgage isn't gonna take Bitcoin. Exactly, so these are people (laughs) who have paid off houses. If I I list a $3 million house in LA right now and my client owns it free and clear and says, Tony, uh, I'm going to pay you your commission in dollar, and I'm going to pay escrow and title and everything and the fees in, in dollar, but I will only accept uh, $3 million worth of marshmallows. Mm-hmm. Excuse me? I want marshmallows as my form of currency. I'm going to have to go find him, somebody who wants to give him $3 million worth of marshmallows. And when they do give him the marshmallows, mm-hmm. I have no liability on that. That was his decision, just like in a 1031 exchange, you're saying, I want my form of currency to be another house. And we're trading commercial real estate or investment properties. I'm using that house as my form of currency, not dollars. Mm-hmm. So I think people are just very uh, unfortunately mistaken about what crypto is and where it's coming and where it's going to go. And we try to be an expert in that field. And now that we've done it is why I've been on CNBC talking about how it'll continue making its way into the real estate industry and yeah because bitcoin is about to have in what they call having in in a in in a few months when the mining will get twice as hard mm-hmm. so sp- speaking of this whole tokenization in real estate i've heard i've heard of wherein now with certain properties they issue tokens and a group of people can kind of split it up yeah, so I mean it's like fractional ownership, okay. right? So uh, you're going back to the days where you like the Ritz Carlton. They'll okay. have these huge resorts, but then a residential tower, and then a condo in that residential tower will have nine different owners who all own a percentage, and it's called fractional ownership. And it's still popular. There's still places all over the world that do it. Well, now the vision is: Are we going to an industry? Is real estate going to evolve to where? When we want to invest in real estate, we're doing it through fractional ownership that is being listed for sale to where you're on, you eight different pro- people own this, mm-hmm. this Airbnb out in the desert that gets vacation rentals and stuff like that. Uh, and you all have your documentation and, and 
and it's becoming more popular because people can't get it on their own. How would you even get into fractional ownership, though? Uh, right now, there are companies coming out that are trying to be the ones that here's a listing that we're going to split. It tends to be whoever the owner is of that property now who's going to try to pull this off so that he can get money for because you, if you end up getting money for eight different people, you end up getting way more for your property when you were trying to sell it than you would have just sold it to one no, person. And so it's going to start with that, or it's going to start with a group of people who want to start their own little S-corp, right, or their own little venture capital mm -hmm. and say, let's do this together and start investing in real estate as our own little, you know, company type of thing. Mm -hmm. But I, but I mean like right now there's no website that I could go to and be and that specializes in not that are doing it well. Okay. Like not that I would I would send somebody to and be and be 100% confident they're not going to call me next week and say what did you do? I lost <laughs> my like it's just nobody's doing it at that high level yet, but it is evolving. There are many articles that you can research on. You just have to really take the time to study it. What are the new new I guess new technologies you see popping up in real estate now. Uh, technology has changed our industry completely. And uh, I've always been somebody who embraced technology as the gateway to, to relationships. Um, and now I think that real estate companies are not understanding what embracing technology means. Uh, first, they're all coming out with their own technology. Uh, they're all calling themselves technology companies uh, instead of the fact that we're real estate companies uh -huh. that sell houses. And that's, to me, not the right approach. The right approach is you embrace technology as a gateway to get in front of people more than you could in any other form. And so what's happening is this whole evolution is where technology is allowing uh, buyers and sellers to find each other in the things like the Zillow effect mm -hmm. or Open Door and the new evolution of what's called iBuyers. And iBuyers are where Zillow and these huge organizations are actually the ones buying the property now from the seller and then turning around and selling it. So Zillow is considered an iBuyer. And now all these national real estate brands are trying to say, wait, 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 because they, they know that's going to bypass the agent and the way things are done now. So then what they do is they turn around and try to convince their agents, no, we, we want to fight that. So we want to prevent this. You're not going to prevent it. It's done. It's over. They're, it's Zillow. They're not going anywhere. So, so they're buying and selling. They are. Zillow. Yeah, Zillow and yeah. and op all these companies, all the big ones. So what's happening now is now the national real estate brands want to survive. And they know, okay, we have to try to we have to try to put technology in front of our agents to where they think we can all come together to control the data or fight these giants from changing our industry. No, it's impossible. Uh, first of all, control the data. In the next few years, data will be in the hands of anybody who wants it, uh -huh. and we can't control the data. And the reason we can't control the data is we're not the ones giving our clients data out. Our clients are the ones giving their own data out. Uh -huh. Consumers give their data out every day. day. Yeah. The second they even click on something, yeah, they, that 
organization has all their data, their cookies and digital remarketing and big data and predictive analytics. So technology has just made a significant uh, evolution in our industry. And I think that's why agent numbers will shrink. Commissions will shrink for the most part across America. And agents today who are going to survive need to embrace the giant and need to accept the fact that they're willing to adapt and allow our industry to change because the consumer chose. And when the consumer chooses something, we have to embrace what they want. And so to answer your question about tech and real estate, that's, that's what's happening. You know, in, and that's what's going to be the future of our real estate is we're going to become more of a digitized industry. Tony, why would someone take something as volatile as Bitcoin in exchange for a house? Because the minute you, minute, the minute you sign the papers, Bitcoin already diving. You know, this thing like it's like a snake almost up and down. Why would they do that? Well, I have a few different things I, I would want to say to that. Um, First, just like the gold rush, it's a crypto rush. So there's no limit to where crypto can go right now. True. Uh, even Bitcoin. And, and Bitcoin would be your platinum, technically. Uh, Ethereum would be your, your gold. Uh, Litecoin would be your silver, right? It kind of goes down in value per yeah. different type of crypto. But if we're in a gold rush type of thing and there's people who have said and shown why it can, that Bitcoin in two years from now, three years from now could be a $250,000 coin. That's true, very true. And so they're looking at it like the long term. Like, yes, it's a day-to-day, very volatile investment if you're holding on to that currency. But most of these people over time have made so much money in the investment that when they go to buy something that's more of a stable investment, like real estate, using Bitcoin, they're even they're just buying the real estate to hold on to it because they want something not as volatile and now i can use all of these massive profits that i made in this volatile currency to buy this asset that's more stable now they've bought it now whether or not they're they still have leftovers to to go up and down that's up to them and then they're giving the person who's willing to take bitcoin so this person who has the stable asset is like, oh, you want me to take a very volatile asset in replace of my very stable asset? But I do understand crypto. That's why I'm willing to do this. And I have the ability to start moving it back to US dollar uh, over time, but it's probably gonna take a little while to move that much. Well, in that case, buyer of Bitcoin says, I'll give you a half a million more for your house. Okay, I'm in. I'll give you 750000 more for your house. And you have two things can happen. It tanks and you're still around the $3 million mark when you finally have moved it. Or it goes down a little bit more and then you just sit it out and then it's back up again. Or you're going to end up walking away with $750,000 extra dollars for your house when it hasn't been able to sell for a year because of it being unique. And now I came and gave you even more. And those situations are happening too. So we just have to understand that. I always want people to understand there's two forms of every currency. There's the investment side of it, where you're holding and just watching it go up and down, or you're using it for a shorter period of time. And hopefully you have enough padding to ride that market and invest in different assets. But crypto, it's finding its way in everything, not just real estate. And the technology behind crypto. That's the real money maker. Which is blockchain. Has already now 
gone away from crypto and blockchain is now finding its way into so many different governments and organizations not even tied to cryptocurrency just for the fact that it's some of the most advanced technology on the face of the planet. The security behind the blockchain technology is doing record and data keeping of organizations and governments now. We do feel that probably, I don't think it's going to happen in the next five years, but the future of real estate and the future of a transaction, it will be a digitized transaction. I would say it's probably going to take 10 to 15 years. There are people out there that think it could take 20 years or things like that. I think it could easily be done in 10 years because it evolves so quickly that I think eventually the entire real estate transaction from start to finish will be completely digitized. That's, I, I don't know why we can't vote on the blockchain. You know, why I have to leave home? I believe we will. <laughs> I know, in time, in I time. Be, it won't, no won't be today or tomorrow, but in, in time, I could see Americans, and that'll make more people active, because if all you have to do is click a button at home, you know, then I'm more inclined to vote. Okay, so let's go back to something you just said. You just said that real estate market back in 2008, when everyone crashed, everybody lost their house, half of Florida was on the streets. Is this market like that right now? Because a lot of people, I mean, you look at housing prices in Los Angeles, and it's through the roof to the point where you go like, dude, come on, $100 million home? Is that house really worth $100 million? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, maybe somebody will buy it, whether or not it was worth it. Uh, but do billionaires have the ability to buy something that is completely overpriced just to say they bought it? Uh-huh. Sure. So is, the, is there ego behind some of these prices too? Uh-huh. Of course. They have the money to spend. Let's not forget what a billionaire makes just with his money sitting in a bank. Uh-huh. Millions upon millions a year right. in income. Uh-huh. Like they can't even spend the money. Uh-huh. So uh, it has gotten ridiculous. But to go back to the 0809, and if we're in that now, I really truly don't feel we are. We do have a major affordability issue in America, and that is causing the wealthy to be the only ones that can purchase for the most part or people with great careers. So there is definitely going to be a housing shift. We just went through the first decade of a bull market in United States history. Yeah, no yeah, decade yeah. has ever started in a bull market and ended in a bull market. No, no recessions, yeah. So we've had a 12-year bull run at this point in a way, and that can't last. So when the recession comes, whenever it comes, housing will shift, but will it crash? No. See, everybody thinks of 0809 as a housing shift and a crash. It was a crash. It wasn't a shift. Shifts before that are these flat periods where some markets feel it, some markets don't. Real estate goes down maybe 5 or 10% across the nation, but some areas went up a little bit. That's a shift. Real estate's going up, and then it shifts. Mm-hmm. Real estate's going up. And it used to happen every 10 or so years before September 11th. That caused a fake market. So now what we've done is since that crash, we've gotten back up and above where housing was at the top of that fake crash to where it would have been if that had never happened. We're just where we would have been. So when a shift comes, I think it will be an overall flattening, but nobody has a crystal ball. I just think it'll be what historic shifts were before that 0809 crash. Okay. So here's an argument I'd like to make that in today's world, real estate agents are obsolete that you could do this yourself and save money. You agree with that? I'd like this interview to be over now. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, no you know, it's funny that you say that because I agree. And, and I, I, I disrupt the, the industry when I speak to audiences of real estate industries because I say things that 
they don't want to hear a lot of the time because they don't want to come to this realization. We are not obsolete. We are just doing less than what real estate agents had to do 10 or 15 years ago. We're definitely spending less than okay. what real estate agents used to have to do. But in certain urban markets, LA, New York, big city markets, the agent has to be involved. What they do is what's changing. But in areas where uh, technology is starting to make where access to information, a buyer and seller can find each other themselves, come to terms mm -hmm. on price, and then just say, well, now it doesn't need to be marketed. Open houses don't need to be done. Showings don't need to be done. So let's just click this button and have an agent oversee the paperwork. Because, That's like going into escrow and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but a real estate agent to still protect them with the right disclosures, potential litigation, things like that. An agent will always have to be involved, but what role they play is significantly going to evolve in the next five or ten years. Agent numbers will shrink in the United States and commission will shrink in the United States. But that is mostly going to be in these areas where a buyer and seller can come to terms on a track home. A buyer and seller are not going to come to terms on a $5.5 million house in Brentwood. Yeah, It's just not going to happen. So luxury in urban cities, big urban cities, it's a completely different animal. But across the nation, overall, it's going to evolve significantly. And the agent, because of technology, is going to have to embrace change or they will be obsolete. Very interesting. So so would you say it's a good time to buy right now? When you look at California, because the prices here are crazy. Right. Is it a good time to buy? So I have a presentation, a topic, and it's one of the books that I'm writing called Shift Happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that is is it talks about housing shifts. It talks about commission shifts. It talks about mindset shift. It's not just about housing shifting prices. But in that presentation, I, I try to educate agents and say – that when you, when you look at uh, windows of opportunity to buy, what's the best time to buy for get in and get out and make a profit? Those are, those are short windows. Uh -huh. So is it a good time to buy right now to where you might be able to fix something up and flip it or hold on to it for 12 or 24 months because real estate's going through the roof and sell it in two years? No, I don't think so. We've just been going up for too long. That a shift is coming. Yeah, we have to. We have to have a shift. However, a good time to buy, to not sell. There's never a bad time to buy. Real estate is the hottest commodity on the face of the planet. There's always more people being born on Earth and less dirt. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. So why does real estate always go up thirty times more than it goes down? Because population. Like, we're going to continue being pushed out to the desert more and more, right? Mm -hmm. So urban areas are going to continue going up in value. So just remember, is it a good time to buy? Depends. Are you looking for a temporary thing or are you looking to hold? Because you could go, imagine going back in time and telling people who bought their house for $50,000 in 1952 that you'll go through four significant real estate shifts and one massive crash mm -hmm. and your house will still be worth a million. They would have thought you were insane. Yeah, yeah. So to tell people right now, your million dollar condo here in L.A., will be $15 million in 40 years. They're just, no, that's, that's impossible. No, because a stick of gum will be $100. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just the dollar gets weaker. That's what yeah. has always happened. So to answer your question, short term, not a good time to buy, I don't think. Long term, always a good time to buy. Which brings up another point. Is it better 
to buy or to build? Uh, that's a probably an hour long answer because there's so many factors. Is it better to buy or build? Uh, if you buy somebody who dropped a ton of money in a property, it's I've always thought it really comes down. I mean, very few times is it not this. So the majority of the time you're buying something turnkey, just gorgeous remodel. You didn't build it yourself. It's ready to go. The owners who did that probably aren't getting their money out of it. Okay. They just did. They dropped a hundred grand on that kitchen to get 50,000 more in the price. So it's kind of, I've always compared it to a, like a classic car. Have you ever heard of somebody who bought a 1969 Bronco that was rusted out, dropped 50 grand into this thing or 60 grand and still was able to sell it for a profit? Very rare. Uh -huh. ne they almost never get their money out of it. It's kind of like a older home that you dropped a ton of money. And we just had this happen to clients because they thought they were going to retire on it, retire in it. So they remodeled it to owner residence not to know that they were going to sell it one day. When you know you're going to sell something one day, you tend not to spend so much money. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we'll just do this this floor instead of that floor. But they thought they were going to retire in it. So they spent an insane amount of money. Life changes. They're not going to retire in it. They put it on the market. And the whole time we were trying to sell it, yeah, but Tony, that floor is, I know. Yeah, but Tony, we put, I know. But you're not going to get your money for it. Trust me. They're just going to score it. If you build, then you did it all at that one point, and that's where it's going to determine, are you connected? Are you building a house without knowing who the contractors are? Do you have a connection where you get discounts? Is your friend an interior designer? Or are you just, I, I'm moving here, I don't know anybody, and I want to build a home? Then I would actually probably highly recommend just buying a house that's ready to move in because they did it all for you. So, so as, as a businessman right now, based on how many people in L.A. struggling to find homes, would it, would it be almost just as good an investment to find a, a lower-cost neighborhood and to slap in some pre-filed homes for rent? There's so many uh, amazing speakers out there that speak on the, the greatest wealth. I mean, some of the most wealthiest people in the world got their wealth through owning real estate. So if you're in an urban market where the return for leasing does not cover the mortgage, it's actually you're losing money every, every month for something like this area, uh -huh. then you have to figure out other areas to go. Does it have to be prefab? No. There are so many areas in, you, through Nevada, Arizona, uh, Michigan, where you hear people are able to buy these really old houses that need a lot of work in bad areas that are up and coming and are still able to get these houses and then cover the entire mortgage payment, taxes, and insurance 30-year fixed at these insane low rates. See, that's another factor of what makes a, a market strong is these rates are incredibly low. And that, like, people thought interest rates would never be lower than 6, and people are getting 3% interest rates. And then there's people who are like, oh, it can't go any lower. You said that when it was six. Mm -hmm. The UK went to negative interest rates. People actually got a check from their bank <laughs> for their mortgage that month. And you think that can't happen here? You don't think we can go to two or one? Uh -huh. Like, we don't know. So with interest rates being so low, the fact that you can go and buy some rental properties in areas where you can still get a house for 100 grand, knowing that eventually that person is going to pay off your house 
and pay off that mortgage and you're still getting rental income, rental income is one of the greatest assets people can have in creating that wealth and knowing that your asset is also going up in value. So you're looking at millennials right now. It's unlikely many of them will be able to buy a home anytime soon. People staying at home longer, living with the parents. And I saw in San Francisco something recently wherein, you know, you know these new companies, um, they, they call them pods now, wherein you have a bunk bed, so to speak, in, in a shared living space with a bunch of other millennials. Not everyone is a millennial either. I mean, all kinds of ages in mm-hmm. there. Like that's a, that, that, that's a new thing and it's uh, affordable. How do you get into doing something like that? Because, I mean, that's something that you know if you built out, people would rent. How, how, would, how, do you, how do you make something like that happen? It's really the builders. So, yeah, if you build it yourself, then you're going to benefit greatly from it. Or if you're just trying to get into that piece of business, then most of these people who are building these uh, similar types of um, living situations that you're talking to, the builder has what's called their sales or their, their sales staff. So if you want to get into that because you know it's going to continue getting more popular, you want to reach out to builders who are doing it and say, I'd like to be on your sales staff to represent these people coming in who are buying or all going to share these mm-hmm. these buildings and, and lease. Um, otherwise, if you want to benefit the most, you're going to have to build it. You're well, going to have to do it yourself. I mean, but renting something like that just seems so weird because you're not. it's not a true apartment per se. These are like... It's a really a shared space. So would you need like a special permit for something like that? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to have to fall under certain zoning in L.A., uh, multifamily and everything. You're not going to be able to do that in a residential neighborhood without question. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're just going to have to take the time to understand, Okay, where can we build this? Where is it allowed? And what are the liabilities? What are the disclosures? Kind of like a condominium association has their CC&Rs. You're going to have to have all of that. It's all going to have to be agreed on from everybody who's in these shared spaces. I don't think it's really going to go to a level where it's it's a significant percentage of of, home. of homes or that area, but it is a new evolution. So sure, I mean, it's already been being done. To go back to the fact that millennials or the new generation is paying what you had said, these these astronomical rents and stuff, and they're not buying – They are buying across America on average, but we only see our market where we live. Okay. And so here, uh, of course not. Yeah. And it's it's not because they can't afford the mortgage. It's because they can't afford the down. So if housing, let's say a a cookie cutter track house in Brentwood or Westwood or Culver City is one point five million. Right. And we don't have any more of that fake housing market financing that we had in 04, which is 100 (laughs) percent loan to value, no down payment, stated income, 685 FICO score. Right. Where they can just go into the mortgage payment like rent. Uh Then where are you coming up with the 20 percent down? Where are you coming up with at least 10 percent down? So they have great careers. The the young generation might be able to afford what a mortgage payment would be on a one point two million dollar mortgage but they can't put the 300,000 down because they haven't saved up enough money. So they're paying these astronomical lease amounts, which are actually holding them back from saving up enough money to eventually buy. So it's a catch 22, but it's not that the new generation doesn't want to buy or they don't look at home ownership the same way. It's because in a lot of areas, especially the 20th big cities in America, 
that's where they can't for the most part buy and that's where the the general media talk about those big urban areas but i speak somewhere in america almost every week and in some of the most uh smallest town areas to some of the biggest urban markets and once i start getting out of big urban markets i because i ask questions to the audience i say what's the home ownership age group like who's buying homes and it falls significantly mm -hmm. but if i was to ask that question to an audience here in la or manhattan new york besides trust fund babies they're going to say over the age of 30 or on average yeah but in uh outside suburban area 24-year-olds are buying houses. 22-year-olds are buying their first condo. Yeah, okay. All right. But it all talks about that down payment, right? And even if we're going to a rental uh, industry, meaning it's going to become less and less people who own homes, the home still has to be owned by someone. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, there's no such thing as a house that's rented out by the city, you know, for the most part. Uh, there's situations, but for the most part. So when you think about that, no matter what, somebody has to own the home and who's the agent that represented that person to buy it to then rent it out to the millennials. So it's a matter of also who are your clients? Because 10 years ago, 17 different people could have bought 17 different homes and 17 different agents could have represented those transactions. And now most of those people can't afford it because they don't have a down. But who has the client who can buy those 17 houses and rent them out? And now that agent is the one that's being able to do all these transactions because he has that client. So I really try to push agents. You've got to make sure you're going after people who can actually afford to invest in real estate because it's going to continue shifting where very, a very small percentage of people can actually buy. And that means you're, if you don't have that client, you're not going to have any business. Let me, okay, so with that in mind, you, you you have guys in LA, San Francisco. I mean, living in vans who make who make money, decent money. Sometimes you just can't mm -hmm. afford the home, and you don't want to pay this in, in exorbitant rent. Would you advise people like that to say, "Hey, why not invest in properties outside, out out of state, rent those time. out, okay, and then live your life here without ever having necessarily to buy a home here?" That makes sense to you all the time, you know. And that's what I learned the first time. See the the the. That, or that's what I learned after the first time when I lost everything is I was too focused on half the properties I lost weren't even rented out. I was like, Oh, I don't want to deal with a tenant. And they would just sit empty mm -hmm. in whatever town they were or whatever city, but they tended to be in areas of vacationing, Palm desert, Arizona, the Bay area, Maui, LA. I was building two gorgeous spec homes in Malibu to flip. Cause I was an owner builder now so I wasn't being smart with the real estate I was buying. I thought I was, but I was buying real estate at the highest point of value price and in a fake housing market. And so now what I try to educate people on is, look, I know you want to buy your first house and I know you're wishing you could right now, but there's nothing more that creates wealth than owning real estate and, you, and it's not in your just primary residence. That's not where you're going to, gain extraordinary wealth. It's use outside areas, buy 10, $200,000 houses in the middle of the desert, somewhere outside of Phoenix, Arizona, or Detroit, Michigan, knowing eventually more people, less dirt. Detroit needs to make that area really nice now. 
push them even further out, make that area a nice neighborhood now. And now before you know it, your values have all gone up a hundred grand on each of them and your renters have already paid off half of your mortgage. How do you find those kinds of homes though? You gotta be willing to reach out to real estate agents in those markets. First, you just, it shocks me how many people just don't think, you start at Google. Like what are the best prices for houses in America? Like start figuring out what are the top 10 cities that you can buy a rental property in and probably cover the mortgage payment in the rent. You're gonna be able to read Forbes articles. It's gonna immediately tell you some of the cities that I just mentioned. So now you reach out to real estate agents in those cities and say, I'm thinking about investing and do you handle that? And do you know that area? And then your agent starts working for you. But then you would need a management company to kind of handle that for Uh you, right? Because you can't- If you don't want to, yeah. Especially if it's out of the area, you hire a local property management company who's gonna take their five to 10% of the rental income. That's their fee for managing it for you and done. So tell us about this book that you have. This is- uh, So this is the latest book. It's the Social Agent 2.0 update. You could hold it Um, up, The Social Agent 2.0 update was uh, the second edition of my book that came out in 2012. And that was a, that book still is online. It's just the social agent. And that's a bestseller. Yeah, they both are bestsellers. That first book was the mindset shift, meaning it's a 90 page easy guide to show a salesperson or a small business owner how simple social media can be. And it's still just that. It's Mm -hmm. just a simple approach to start benefiting from it. This is the book that goes way deeper into more of the advanced techniques and strategies to really build your business in any industry you're in. So if you own your own dentist practice, then you're a small business owner. If you're in sales, then contact is what you need, human relationships. If you're a real estate agent, insurance agent, lender. So there's so many industries that need to build their own online presence. They're not just employees of a corporation. They're trying to build something. If you're trying to build anything, then the book tells you what the latest trends tend to be on building your brand online. Were you surprised your book became a bestseller? I mean, the, the first time. The first one I was. Well, I yeah. mean, what's that like? Like you uh, get a call, hey, Tony, you're a bestseller. Holy uh, shit. It took a couple years, you know, it just, and, and I, I was surprised that it. So it was out I for was a while. surprised that people even got value from it. The only reason I wrote it is, yeah, for years I just had this, this goal of writing a book. I didn't think I ever would. And then it was seeing somebody talk about writing a book and who was an author and that if you ever wanted to do it, you should do it. And then it was somebody who was in my life at the time, this, this guy who always kind of doubted like me and what I could do. And he said, you can't write a book. And I was like, you're doubting me again. Like, <laughs> like thank you. So it kind of fueled me to prove him wrong and write the book. So I write this book in six months, 90 pages, like, and I publish it, uh, self-publish it on CreateSpace, which doesn't exist anymore on what? Amazon. That was a CreateSpace book? Yeah. What the? I wrote the book. I know. So I wrote the book. and I then, didn't know that. Yeah. So it was, I just self-published on CreateSpace, but I didn't do the edits myself or anything. Meaning mm-hmm. uh, you had two choices. You can be one of the people who upload a book in a CreateSpace and self-publish and it has misspellings and uh-huh. poor punctuation because you edited it. Or there was another option where you paid CreateSpace a good amount of money. You uh-huh. paid them 
to be your publisher uh -huh. and actually would do the things a real publisher would do, meaning they would edit it, they designed no, it. I know create space. And so I did it because I wanted it to be as if it was published and, 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 and edited correctly. And then we went on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And then, of course, I started speaking. Uh, and, of course, people at the events bought the book. And then my marketing and everything I teach in this book is what made it a bestseller. I know how to do social media campaigns. I know how to push the book in front of people whose iPhones are on things related to social media books. Oh, here's one right here. And But I honestly didn't think that people would get so much value in what I had to teach. Like, I know that they did on stage, but... I didn't realize the, the feedback I would get on the book. And then what happened is then in 2014, everybody starts, so when's the second book? Like, when's the, we want the next one. We want the advanced one. And throughout 2014 or 15, I'd write some of it, and then I'd do nothing for a few months. And then a, a lady who's very close to me in 2016, no, 2017, no, 2016, she goes, you don't want to be known as the guy who only wrote one book, do you? <laughs> and I was like, ugh, because now that's going to fuel me again, because uh -huh. now I need to like, ugh, no, I don't. So then I really pushed through it. My wife was super supportive because I was just writing all morning long and at night, got it, got it designed and then published. And, and this one became a bestseller in a couple different categories within 30 days. And the other one took about almost two years. Okay, but this time you had a publisher and everything. Uh, this time it was through the actual publishing de uh, department of Amazon through Kindle. It wasn't CreateSpace or okay, anything like okay, that. Yeah. Okay, 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 dude, wow. That, that whole CreateSpace story, because I, I did a bartending book on CreateSpace. So I know what you're talking about. And um, yeah, that was a, yeah, that was at, a rough process. At, so, at first, this was, this was going to be submitted into CreateSpace, but... Then they did the whole switch over, and, and then it got into the Kindle and the KDP of Amazon for publishing. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an impressive story right there with the book. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, thank you for coming through. You're you very, guys, you're go very check, welcome. Thank you, thank you for coming through. You guys, go check out his book, man. Okay? Yeah, and you guys are awesome. I love what you're doing, and I just wanted to make sure people know who you are uh, that follow me because I, it's very impressive to see what you're doing, and obviously – you're very talented in what you do and tipsy bartender, but just your, your motivation to use that influence and the types of people you've been interviewing, I got to say hats off to you because you. Uh, we're just lowly real estate agents who sell real <laughs> estate in LA and uh, you're doing great big yeah, things. But so, if, But if I had your knowledge, I wouldn't be here now. Here, I'd be on a boat chilling, you know? Here, so I mean, Here I thought my, my few hundred thousand following was like, whoa, check Tony out. And then I look at you and I go, oh. <laughs> Well, whatever. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Jody. All right. All right. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Stay tipsy. Oh, no, wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye. <laughs>